it's time for Legally Speaking. Joined, as always, by Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Morning, Michael. How are we doing? Good morning. I'm doing great. What is on our agenda today? Well, we have a theme today. And okay. uh, that theme would be uh, detention uh, combined with a little bit of murder and mayhem. So that usually uh, <laughs> makes for some interesting comment. Um, and so the first case that I wanted to talk about is a brand new decision out of the Supreme Court of Canada. Uh, and it is indeed murder and mayhem with a dose of detention. Uh, and this is a case that's out of Prince George in BC. Mm-hmm. And it's a case that involved the murder of a rival drug dealer. Um, and the issue in the case was whether the uh, murder of this person was first degree uh, or second degree murder. Mm-hmm. Um, and first degree murder, as most people will be familiar with, is usually a result of planning and deliberation. That's the most common way a murder can be turned from second degree into first degree, right? Mm-hmm. If you plan it out in advance, think about it, then go and commit the murder. We view that as more serious than if you do it on the spur of the moment, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But... That's not the only way you can commit first-degree murder. Uh, other ways include things like a contract killing, although hard to imagine how that's also not planned and deliberate. Yeah. Uh, but you, you, you can also do it if you murder a peace officer or, uh, indeed, if you uh, commit a murder in the course of, uh, while committing or attempting to commit a variety of very serious, various serious offenses, including things like hijacking an aircraft or sexual assault. Or one of the ways is, in the course of kidnapping and forcible confinement. Interesting. And so that brings us to the fact pattern in this Supreme Court of Canada case, the murder of the drug dealer. Uh, And what happened is three uh, drug dealers uh, had uh, uh, picked up uh, a rival drug dealer and were driving him along at high speed in a truck. Uh, One of the uh, drug dealers, the uh, appellant in this case, that went to the Supreme Court of Canada, started hitting the rival drug dealer uh, with a handgun. Uh, And uh, eventually when the uh, truck that they were traveling in slowed down, uh, the uh, drug dealer who was getting beaten with the handgun jumped out uh, and tried to run away. Mm -hmm. And here's where the question about was this person confined matters. Okay. So away runs the drug dealer who was being hit with the handgun. uh, And so the truck stops. The three people in the truck jump out. Uh, The appellant accused starts shooting at the uh, drug dealer who's running away and hit him, hits him. That stops him from running any further, but he's not dead. Uh, One of the uh, other people in the truck goes up to him and shoots him at short range saying, I got him, boss. <laughs> uh, so I guess if ever there was an issue about is this, a, is this a criminal organization, you don't want to have the other person yell, I got him, boss. No, probably telling. no, no, you so, don't. Not helpful. So kills him at short range. And so off this matter goes to trial. And interestingly, the matter goes to trial with a judge alone. Most times with a murder charge, uh, it's going to be a jury trial. But if both the Crown and the defense agree, there could be a trial with a judge alone. And this one was a trial with a judge alone. The judge was not satisfied that this murder was planned and deliberate for whatever reason. And so convicted only on of second degree murder, right? For the uh, person, the sort of the, the boss, as it were. Yeah. Um, the Crown appealed that to the Court of Appeal and eventually to the Supreme Court of Canada, arguing that this should still have been first degree murder on the basis that the uh, drug dealer who was shot and killed 
was uh, confined at the time. And so the argument became, was he still confined? Because, of course, he'd leapt out of the truck yeah. and was heading for the hills. Hmm. Uh, and so was he, defi- was he still in that state of confinement? And the Court of Appeal uh, and eventually the Supreme Court of Canada in this recent uh, decision found that indeed he was still confined. Hmm. Uh, and they applied the principle that unlawful confinement is means more than just the person who's still, for example, in the truck as it's speeding down the road. Uh, and that concept of unlawful confinement can be defined as depriving a person of their liberty so they can't move about as they'd want to. And so the fact that the person managed to leap out of the truck and run some distance before being shot um, didn't end the confinement. Uh, and so... Uh, for that reason, uh, because they found that he was still confined in the sense he couldn't move about as he wanted, he, I guess he wouldn't want to be fleeing while somebody's trying to shoot you in the back, um, he was still confined. And so as a result, the uh, actions of the boss still constituted first-degree murder. And so uh, instead of second-degree, he was convicted of first-degree murder. Uh, and so both convictions, first or second, would get you a life sentence, but a conviction for first degree means that uh, it's automatically uh, no parole requests for 25 years, right? Yeah. And so that's the that's the outcome for the boss. Um, you know, even without that, it's hard to imagine a much more serious state of affairs. You're beating somebody with a handgun and uh, eventually shooting them. Uh, but uh, there it is from the Supreme Court of Canada. They've taken a broader view of that. I should pause to say that there's also a provision uh, mm-hmm. that can make a murder first degree murder if it's carried out for the benefit of, at the direction of, or in association with a criminal organization. Mm. And so you could also imagine getting there in this fact pattern where somebody says, I got him, boss. That's probably pretty <laughs> compelling evidence. That I, kind of I'm sorry. I just like, like it's henchman orientation would never, ever, ever say out loud, I got him, boss. It sounds like something out of no. a movie. That's right. That's really unhelpful evidence if you're the accused person and arguing that this wasn't a criminal organization. Oh. <laughs> Hard to imagine what else that might, might, might entail. So that could have been the basis for it as well, but that's how the Supreme Court of Canada dealt with it. So broad interpretation of uh, that uh, process of unlawful confinement, and it doesn't end when you manage to leap out of the truck uh, as the rival drug dealers are trying to murder you. <laughs> and so that was the outcome here. All right. Next up, this is yeah. failure to... Permit a suspect to contact a lawyer. Now, um, people who consume American media um, will talk about Miranda rights and the right to remain silent. We, of course, don't call them that here, but we have rights here. And among them is you are permitted to contact counsel. How does all that work? Yeah, that's right. Uh, We've got in Canada this right to retain and instruct counsel without delay when somebody is arrested or detained. And detained being the operable thing and in keeping with our theme today. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so... The fact pattern in this case was that there was a a young Indigenous uh, man, I think he was 19, um, who was a suspect in a murder investigation. The police uh, got a search warrant for his home, and the SWAT team showed up to execute the search warrant, a whole team of armed police officers. Um, And the police entered his home to search it, woke him up, uh, and then got him to, quote, agree to come back to the police station with them to answer some questions. So they drove him back to the police station uh, and uh, conducted a three-hour interview and took blood samples and fingerprints. And during none of that did they tell him about his right to contact a lawyer. I see. Um, 
And then a few days later, they came and arrested him for murder. This time, they told him about his right to speak to a lawyer, uh, and he was permitted a short phone call to legal aid, right? There's sort of a phone number people can call if they don't have a lawyer. The advice that legal aid gave him was, get a lawyer. <laughs> Talk about your situation. <laughs> uh, oh, yep, that's, that's sound advice. Yep, that's, that's good sound advice. And we've actually had a case in B.C. which was along those lines. Somebody who was a young person arrested for a murder investigation, and this telephone line that people might call this uh, Bridges Legal Aid number yes. uh, is giving pretty summary advice to people. And part of that is just volume. Yeah. The, go- the government contracts it out to the lowest bidder. And so you wind up with you know a lawyer who's sitting there in an easy chair taking hundreds of calls a day all across the province for everything from shoplifting to murder. Yes. Um, and the advice is of- often pretty brief. <laughs> Um, which might be sufficient for somebody who's arrested for shoplifting, right? But may not be sufficient for somebody who's arrested for murder and about to be interrogated for hours, right? They might need some more advice. Indeed. Um, And so there's a protocol in BC where they're supposed to try to make arrangements for a senior lawyer to go out and actually talk to the person in person where there's a really serious uh, case like murder. But that being said, that's what happened here. Um, Get a lawyer was the advice. Um, and so the police then started interrogating uh, this young man again, uh, and he eventually asked during the interview to be able to phone his dad to try to get a lawyer, saying, well, that's the only way I'm going to get a lawyer. Can I phone my father? Mm. And their response was, no, you've uh-huh. had your chance. That was the legal aid phone call. And so he argued, or his lawyer argued, hey, neither of these things should be allowed, the first statement or the second one. Uh, and the trial judge said, no, they're all admissible. Um but the Court of Appeal overturned that, and so off the case went to the Supreme Court of Canada, uh, who found that both statements were not properly admissible. The first one, uh, that is the one where they picked him up and drove him back while the team of armed police officers were searching his home. That one, even though he wasn't told, you're under arrest, the right in Canada to retain and instruct counsel arises upon either arrest, like you're under arrest, but your hands behind your back, or detention. Uh, and so then the issue arises, was he detained when he was, to, you know, agreed, quote unquote, to go back to the police for this three hour interview? Hmm. And it's not uncommon for the police to try to get somebody to come back to the station without arresting them so that they don't have to tell them about the right to talk to a lawyer. Often that'll be in the form of the police phoning somebody and saying, hey, you know, we've had some kind of a complaint. Would you mind coming down to talk to us? We're just trying to get to the bottom of it. You know, surely you want to tell me your side of it. Come on down, right? Yep. And if the person comes on down, then the initial, the opening will be something along the lines of, hi, thanks for coming down. You're not arrested. You're free to leave at any time. Look here, the door's unlocked. You see here? <laughs> Come with me. Uh, this is all being recorded, by the way. And then try to get the person talking to them. The reason they're saying things like, you're not detained, and look, the door handle, look, it's jiggling, it's open, Right is they don't want to have the person to be detained in a legal sense. And so that's what the, um, and it's not because they're open-minded necessarily, although you'd hope they are. Um, it's because they don't want to tell the person about the right to speak to a lawyer who would inevitably tell the person, stop talking, <laughs> this is not going to help you. Um, and so the Supreme Court of Canada had to deal with the issue of how, when is somebody detained such that they have the right to be told about talking to a lawyer and to be given that chance? Yeah. Because this young man wasn't told and had no chance. And they said, well, there are three elements to it. The judge should be asking, first of all, how did the person perceive or understand the encounter with the police? 
right? Did they feel that they were required to comply with the police instructions? And so here they looked at the fact that there was a whole team of armed police that showed up, woke the person up, and then, quote, invited them to come back to the police station where they drove them, put them in a secure area, right? We're taking fingerprints, blood samples, doing all these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Second of all, you should look at whether the police, what they actually did. Thirdly, you would look at it in an objective way. Like would another person in this circumstance with similar characteristics, would they feel that they were kind of compelled and couldn't leave, right? Because it's the pretty bold person who, when the you know team of armed police show up at your home, invite you, quote, unquote, to come with them, who then just says, yeah, I think I'll leave now. No, thanks. I'm not coming with you, <laughs> right? Yeah. People can easily feel compelled to do something, even if they haven't put handcuffs on you or told you you're not free to leave, right? If you have a bunch of armed police standing around you and say, why don't you come with me, young man, get in the car, right? It's the bold person who says, no, thanks. Uh, <laughs> I think I'll just remain here. Uh, and so the point is that you can have a detention uh, based on how you know, all those surrounding circumstances, right? Sort of what did the police do? Would the person perceive that they were required to be there, right? Yeah. Um, and so they found that the police should have told him about his right to talk to a lawyer on the first occasion. And so that breached his right to do that. And on the second occasion, when they came and did arrest him for murder, um, they found that the brief telephone call to this legal aid number who told him, get a lawyer, <laughs> was not adequate. And the young man, when he said, I think I should call my dad to get a lawyer, can I do that? And they told him, no, <laughs> that wasn't sufficient. Yeah. Um, and the right is not a single phone call. And the right does not say in the charter to a call to a lawyer or anything like that. Yeah. Um, and I should say the police are often keen to get somebody on the phone with this legal aid number because the phone call lasts all of two minutes because the person's going to get on to the next call, yeah. right? They don't want the person getting thorough advice explaining why they shouldn't speak to the police and explaining their rights and how they'd have a chance to do that in the future. They don't want that. They want a two-minute phone call which they can get a hold of right away so they're not waiting, and they'd be given very brief advice like, don't say anything, talk to a lawyer tomorrow. <laughs> My phone's ringing. Next. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and so they found that in this circumstance, that wasn't enough. Um, and that given how brief that uh, call was, given how serious the matter was, and given that the young man was asking to uh, call a uh, call his dad, he said something like, can I call my dad? That's the only way I'm going to be able to get a lawyer. Uh, that in that circumstance, they should have stopped <laughs> because that's how it works. The police have a right obligation to tell somebody about the right to counsel. And if the person says, yes, I want to do that, the police are then required to stop trying to ask questions or gather evidence and allow the person a reasonable opportunity to retain and instruct counsel. So the language is not a phone call or yep. one phone call. It's a reasonable opportunity. And you've got to be reasonably diligent. You can't be dragging your feet or, you know, doing it, you know, doing something other than being reasonably diligent. But if that's what you're doing, hey, I, I, I need to call my dad. I'm trying to get the number for the lawyer. I'm calling my sister to get the lawyer's number. I'm right. I need yeah. a phone book or the Internet. They've got to allow that to happen. Um, and so people shouldn't feel like they can only talk to legal aid or it's one phone call and that's it. If you're being reasonably diligent, trying to get legal advice, they need to give you that reasonable opportunity and stop trying to ask you questions. And here, because that didn't happen, the result will be is an order for a new trial. Uh, and the confession that they got out of the young man after the second interview 
won't be admissible. And so uh, they'll have to look at whether they could prove the case based on other evidence other than what they managed to extract uh, after interviewing him twice with the benefit of legal advice to get a lawyer. I'm so yeah. that's the second case on the issue of detention. Yeah, I'm smiling because at the beginning of the conversation on this one, I said the right to contact. And I heard you pause when I said contact. And it's not just one phone call. It's the reasonable uh, process to retain the lawyer. So I learned something today yeah. as well. Yeah, it's a reasonable opportunity to retain and instruct counsel. And so what that's going to look like is going to depend to some extent on the nature of the issue and problem and seriousness of it, right? Like yeah. it may be in some case where the advice is going to be pretty summary. You've been arrested for shoplifting. There may not be a whole lot of advice necessary. But on the other hand, when there, you've been arrested for murder, it may be that, look, you need the lawyer to actually show up there, talk to you in person, take enough time to explain the process and why it is you may not want to provide a statement or that kind of thing. Yeah. More than just, you know, somebody with two minutes on the phone uh, before they've got to get to their next caller, which is not really satisfactory for very serious cases like this one. And factors as well, the court pointed to are things like this was a young, unsophisticated person with very little experience dealing with the police, right? Yeah. You may have had a different answer if you had some very sophisticated person who'd been arrested 50 times before, right? They might be expected to behave in a different way. Uh, but, you know, young indigenous person with no experience with the police, uh, this just wasn't on. And I would say as well that what I've indicated at the beginning, that effort to try to get somebody down to talk without arresting them so as to avoid having to tell them about the right to counsel. Uh, if that's continued, police should be carefully reading this decision when determining whether that's a safe way to proceed, because the purpose of that clearly appears to be so as to avoid having to tell the person about their right to talk to a lawyer. And if a person hasn't sought that out on their own or cottoned on to, hey, this may not be a great idea, uh, you can have some real uh, unfairness there. And in circumstances where the person might reasonably feel that they are uh, detained and a person like them would have that same opinion, it may not be enough to jiggle the door handle and tell them that in theory you're free to leave uh, when no reasonable person would think they can just get up and walk out uh, if the police are taking your blood sample or whatever they're doing. All right, let's take our break. Legally Speaking with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. We'll continue right after this. All right, back to Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Four minutes, 30 seconds remain in this week's segment, Michael, and we have one more matter to which we must attend. Yes, indeed. And so the final case uh, for this week is a new case out of the B.C. Court of Appeal. It also deals with the issue of detention, uh, but at the opposite end of the seriousness continuum from the murder cases we just talked about. Okay. Uh, and the background is that in British Columbia, for the past number of years, the province has moved to an administrative scheme uh, for almost all impaired driving cases. Yeah. Uh, and the concept there was to save money. Uh, and time, because it's faster to hand out an administrative penalty than to prosecute somebody criminally. And so if there's no serious accident and a person has no previous history of impaired driving, police are directed that they are to proceed with this administrative scheme rather than a criminal charge for impaired driving-related uh, offenses. Um, and what's that saying? If you can have something that's uh, two of the following three fast uh, uh, cheap or good. <laughs> you could have uh, two, and, uh, yeah. <laughs> you have two. Yeah. Here we've chosen cheap and fast, perhaps at the expense of good. Uh, but <laughs> so what's happened is that when 
somebody is alleged to have uh, engaged in some impaired driving related matter, right? Impaired, you know, blowing over, or refusing to provide a breath sample. They'll generally just serve a person with this 90 day driving prohibition, which would require them to do a course and pay a fine. No criminal prosecution, which for many people is a blessing, of course, right? Yes. Uh, but the problem is that the appeal mechanism for it has been, I think, generally viewed as quite an unfair one, because basic things like the police officer doesn't show up. You have no opportunity to ask any questions. Um, you must prove your innocence uh, rather than the opposite. Uh, and they're making a decision based on probably yes or probably no, none of which is particularly fair. But the other, the particular issue that the Court of Appeal is dealing with here is an issue of how do you deal with a circumstance where somebody is denied their right to talk to a lawyer? Uh, because here, the person was uh, arrested by the police. They demanded they provide come back and provide breath samples. The person refused, saying they wanted to talk to a lawyer first. Well, if it was case, the judge would decide whether there's a breach of somebody's right to speak to a lawyer in those circumstances, or retain and instruct counsel, as we just talked about. Uh, but these adjudicators that decide these cases are not judges, uh, and they don't have the authority to grant constitutional charter remedies. Interesting. And so here, basically, the adjudicator said, well, you know, what does this have to do with anything, <laughs> right? Uh, confirmed, right? The, the driving prohibition. Yeah. And what the Court of Appeal has said here is for these cases, like other administrative decisions, which are made even where the person making them isn't like a judge who could grant a constitutional remedy, they're not a court of competent jurisdiction, they concluded that the adjudicators when making these decisions are required to make the decisions in accordance with constitutional charter values. That's an interesting idea. Charter values, uh, not so charter rights. Charter values. Yeah, the idea there is that like the person's right to speak to a lawyer yeah. is a constitutional value, and the adjudicator might, for example, decide to give no ev no weight to evidence obtained when somebody was denied that right, mm. even though it's not a constitutional remedy like a court might grant. Yeah, that the adjudicator is required to take that into account because it could, for example, affect how they might weigh evidence obtained when the person was denied that right. So mm. they've got to make decisions in accordance with Canadian constitutional values. And so that's what the court has found. They've sent this particular case back for a new hearing. And it will mean that in the future, when somebody's challenging one of these administrative penalties, the adjudicator will need to take into account constitutional values when deciding what to do, which is going to be very interesting. Of course, not all the adjudicators are lawyers, right? Uh, and sort of how is that uh, going to play out? Uh, but that's the decision. Uh, and so uh, maybe a little baby step towards good uh, perhaps at the expense of quick or something of that sort, because uh, it'll mean there will be some additional consideration to need to be given on a review of these kind of administrative penalties uh, for impaired driving cases in British Columbia. Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, every Thursday during the second half of our second hour on the program here on CFAX 1070. Michael, thank you. Pleasure as always. Thanks so much. Always, uh, always a good time. Have a great week. All right, you too. Bye now.